Now, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to dive into God's Word today. So let's see those Bibles. Make sure you've got them in hand. If you use your phone and your Bible app on there, that's okay, but I'm a little old school. I like to use the Word of God in printed form in front of me. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. The ushers are coming down. They'll get a Bible into your hands. It'll be the same version that I'm reading today. And some of you have asked, what version do you preach out of, Dane? I actually preach out of an obsolete version. It's no longer printed. It's the NIV 1984 version. I actually like it a little bit better than the newer NIV. Uh, We can talk about the reasons why another time, but that's uh, the same Bible these guys will hand out if you want the exact same wording that I'm preaching out of. But whatever version you have, ESV, NIV, NASB, New Living Translation, those are all good translations as well, and it'll be very close to what I'm teaching out of today. Well, I've got to say that uh, whenever we come to the house of God, to worship and to study his word, uh, we have to come at least a little bit hungry, right? We have to come a little bit hungry. But honestly, as I've seen what has happened at Asbury University over there in Kentucky last month, as I've gone out over the last couple weeks to see Jesus' revolution, in fact, I've seen it twice already uh, at the theater, I've got to say, I, I come to you this morning a little bit hungrier than usual for God's word. Amen? A little bit more desperate for God than usual, wanting him more than ever to move in our church and to move in the Victor Valley and to move in the United States of America in power. I come a little bit hungrier today. And I hope that you do as well, because we want to join the ranks of hundreds of thousands of Christians across this nation who are thirsty for an extraordinary move of God, Christians who are thirsty for revival to come to our nation. Amen? We're hungry and we're thirsty today, and today we continue our look at revival, our look at revival. Last week we began our look at this great topic, and I want to continue that today. Well, in 1857, there was a businessman in New York City named Jeremiah Lanfear. 1857, he feels this burden on his heart. He wants to start a prayer meeting that meets every Wednesday during the lunch hour at 12 o'clock. He wants to open up a church and make it available on Wednesdays every week for business people to come together and pray. And so he prints thousands of flyers And he circulates them throughout New York City, and he invites all the businessmen to come to join him there on Wednesday, September 23rd, 1857, at high noon at the Old Dutch Church on Fulton Street in New York City. Well, he is so excited, the flyers are handed out, and at 12 o'clock, he flings open the door, and guess how many people are there to join him? Not a single one. And so he sits down inside the church and waits five minutes, still nobody. He waits ten minutes, still nobody. So at 12.10, Jeremiah begins praying. 12.15, he keeps praying. 12.20, 12.25, still nobody. At 12.30, he hears a noise at the door. And one businessman comes in, followed by another, and then another. Six businessmen joined him for the final half hour of prayer. The next Wednesday... 20 business leaders showed up to pray. As the weeks went by, thousands began to pray. Within six months, there were 10,000 businessmen gathered in New York City for prayer. 
Prayer meetings had also popped up across the country, 150 towns in Massachusetts, 200 in New York, 60 in New Jersey, 65 in Pennsylvania, 200 in Ohio, 150 in Indiana, 150 in Illinois, 50 in Missouri, and 60 in Iowa. Historically, we know it as the Fulton Street Revival. Sometimes it's called the Prayer Meeting Revival of 1857 and 1858. It's estimated that that at the high tide of that revival in 1858, 10,000 people a week were getting saved just in New York City. 50,000 every week across the nation. The Fulton Street Revival was a small taste of what could happen when God moves in an extraordinary way. And what ushers in in our nation a coast-to-coast revival for the Third Great Awakening. It's just a taste Last Sunday, we began to take this closer look at what revival is and what we can do to prepare for it. We saw that revival is an inrush of the spirit into a body that threatens to become a corpse. We saw that the church in America today in many ways is corpse-like. But when revival comes and the Holy Spirit rushes in, he will awaken these dead bones and cause the church to come to life again. And then we focused on my favorite definition of revival, this one that was used in the Promise Keepers movement in the 1990s. Revival, and please read this with me, revival is the extraordinary work of God among his people causing extraordinary results in and through the church. I shared with you three important things about this definition last week. First of all, notice that revival is a work of God. You and I cannot manufacture revival. We can't even schedule revival. We can't say show up on Wednesday night at 7 p.m. We're having revival. Revival doesn't work that way. We don't get to tell God when he's moving. God is God. He's going to move when he wants to move. So it's a work of God, not a work of man. The second thing we notice is that word extraordinary. It's not just a normal work of God. It's an extraordinary work of God. And so when we talk about revival, we're not denying the fact that God moves all the time in his people's church services. Amen. He moves at impact every week when we gather together. Where two or more are gathered in his name, he is in our midst. Amen. And so God does do healings and God does lead people to salvation and God does lead Christians who have been backsliding to repent and and rededicate their lives to Christ. God is always at work in the midst of his people. But when revival comes, he moves in extraordinary ways and he blows us out of our socks because he's moving in a way we've never experienced before. And on the heels of that, many people get saved. We'll talk about that a little bit more today. The third thing I want you to notice is it is through the church. It is through the church. Revival always happens to Christians in the church first. Revival is taking hold of Christians. Those that have already been vived are revived. And God sets them on fire for the Holy Spirit. And then secondly, the Christians take to the streets and we see tens of thousands in many revivals, hundreds of thousands. And in the size our country is today, when revival comes coast to coast, we'll likely see millions come to a saving knowledge of Christ in a very short amount of time. And so revival is something that we're hungry for, something we're thirsty for, something we're desperate for. We need a mighty move of God. We've tried to stand up with picket signs and get our nation to turn away from its downward spiral of its love for the destruction of the unborn child. 
We've held up our picket signs out in front of Planned Parenthoods, and we've tried to convince people that the little baby inside the womb is a child of God, and it is murder to take that little baby's life, and our nation hasn't paid attention. We've tried to put the billboards on the interstates and tell people they need to repent because there is a real thing called hell and they need Jesus Christ and we want them to go to heaven. We've invited people to church. We've done all that we know how to do in our power to try to turn our nation back to God and everything has had minimal results. But when revival comes, God is able to do in his power what we cannot do in our own power. Our country needs a move of the Lord in a mighty, mighty way. Well, when it comes to the question of how we can prepare for revival, our key verse this month is 2 Chronicles 7.14. Remember this great verse from last week. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. We saw last week four steps to help open the door for the Holy Spirit to rush in in revival. We can't manufacture revival, but we can certainly open the door so God can move when he wants to move. Amen? We we can't manufacture it, but we can certainly usher it in and roll out the red carpet for the Holy Spirit to come in. Number one, we have to humble ourselves before God. Number two, we have to pray. Number three, we have to seek God's face. And finally, four, God says we must turn from our wicked ways. And remember those three promises at the end of that great verse. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will, number one, hear from heaven. Number two, I will forgive their sin. And number three, I will heal their land. And we all agree our nation, our country needs a whole lot of healing. Well, this morning we're going to take a closer look at Paul's revival prayer to the Ephesian Christians in Ephesians chapter 3. And so I do encourage you to turn there in your Bibles to the New Testament book of Ephesians. If you forget where Ephesians is, I like to remind us, girls eat popcorn. G-E-P-C, girls eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's a quick way to remember those four middle letters of Paul in the New Testament. So we're going to go to the book of Ephesians Chapter 3, Paul's great prayer to the Christians there in the city of Ephesus. So I'm going to start in verse 14. Please say amen if you're there with me. All right. For this reason, Paul says, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom the whole family, his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through the Spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. I love this part. May have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. What an amazing, powerful prayer. Most of you were here with us last year as I led us through a study of the life of the Apostle Paul. Our Life of Paul series took about two-thirds of the year last year, and most of you were here for that. You probably remember in the book of Acts, 
it records for us Paul's three missionary journeys. About two-thirds of the book of Acts focuses on the Apostle Paul and his three missionary journeys through Asia and Europe. And as he traveled from city to city preaching the good news of Jesus Christ and building churches, one of Paul's dreams was to go into the province of Asia, a very important province there in the Roman Empire. And he wanted specifically to go to Ephesus because Ephesus was the most important, most strategic city in that region of the province of Asia. So he had this dream of going to Ephesus and preaching the good news of Jesus there. And so there in his second missionary journey, he was off to the east in the region of Galatia, and he made plans to head west into the province of Asia, and we can figure he had most in mind to go to that key city of Ephesus there in the province of Asia. And so he had these plans, but we read in Acts 16.6 that the Holy Spirit kept Paul from going there. Last week we talked a little bit about how God sometimes messes up our plans. Well, Paul had these great plans. Man, this is a strategic region. This is a strategic city within this strategic region. I'm going to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no telling what God's going to do. And so he had these good plans, and God says, scrap that. You're not going to Ephesus. You're going somewhere else. And Paul, I'm sure, didn't understand it, but he obeyed the leading of the Lord. And so he didn't go. His second missionary journey, he went a different direction. But two to three years later, God opened the door for Paul to go to Ephesus And his ministry there was extraordinary. Remember, he spent longer in Ephesus than in any other city where he had planted a church. He was there for three years. And so God sent him there. And this is what we read in Acts 19, verses 11 and 12. God did, see the word? Extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. So when Paul was in Ephesus for three years, he was able to lead many people to Christ. He was able to build that church and he was able to send out missionaries to all the other surrounding key cities in the province of Asia. By the time that three years was up, that entire region had been penetrated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing. And we find here, wow, that's what happens when God moves in in a revival-like way. What happened in Ephesus was very revival-like. Now, they were baby Christians. He was just leading them to Christ. So it wasn't technically a revival because they weren't vibed in the first place. But what God does and how he manifests himself in their presence was very revival-like. Now, what he does here through aprons and through handkerchiefs, we never see that happening again in the New Testament. So that's not to say if God brings the coast-to-coast revival, the third great awakening here in America, that we're going to have handkerchiefs and aprons healing people. This was a unique way that God was moving, but it gives us an indication of the extraordinary work that God does when revival comes to an area. Amen? And so he's there for three years and he's ministering and able to reach the whole region because the city of Ephesus was so strategic. But two to three years later, About three years later, Paul finds himself under house arrest in Rome. And he writes a letter to the Christians here in Ephesus about three years after he'd left the city. And we know that letter to be the book of Ephesus. Excuse me, the book of Ephesians. Unlike Paul's letter to the Corinthians in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul doesn't rebuke them for anything. He doesn't criticize them for anything. And so he takes this opportunity in these six chapters in the book of Ephesians to teach them about the church. 
He teaches them about the nature and the role of the church of Jesus Christ in God's eternal plan. It was one of Paul's favorite subjects. He loved teaching about the church. Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 3 is an integral part of what he's teaching in this great letter about the church. This prayer in Ephesians 3 is a key part of the church reaching its full potential in Christ. So I do want us to take a closer look at the verses here of this prayer that we just read. So let's start where we began in verses 14 and 15. Paul writes, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I find this kind of interesting because in Paul's day, the common position for prayer among Jews was standing. They didn't kneel that often. They usually were standing when they prayed. So why does Paul mention that he was kneeling? Well, I take that to mean that Paul was very serious about what he was praying and he was very passionate about what he was praying. Paul was there kneeling before the Lord because he so, so much wanted the Ephesian Christians to be transformed and to be taken to the next level. And so Paul is praying on his knees. He's praying on his knees. Oh God, these things that I'm about to lift up, will will you please cause them to, to be fulfilled in the lives of those Ephesian Christians? Will you please, please change them? It's very common for Christians to say, I, I, I want to know God better. I, I, I want to do more work for Him. But when it comes down to it, this prayer, this powerful, powerful prayer, really takes the prayer for the church to the next level. And I think we'll see that we need to make our prayers more like Paul's prayers. So he has this revival prayer for Christians. As he's praying through these verses here, I pointed out what he says in verses 14 and 15. I kneel before the Father. We talked about how uh, Paul was, was kneeling instead of standing. And then I want you to notice what he says in verses 16 through 19, because this prayer is amazing. Paul really, in verses 16 through 19, has four prayers within his prayer for the Ephesian Christians, I believe for us also. Number one, Paul prays in verse 16, that they would have inner spiritual strength. Inner spiritual strength. Verse 17, he prays for their inner spiritual depth. Verse 18, he prays for their inner spiritual insight. And then finally, verse 19, he prays for them to be filled with the knowledge and the fullness of God. Sounding like a pretty powerful prayer, doesn't it? Pretty powerful prayer. Let's take a quick look at each of these four parts to what he's praying for these Ephesian Christians. First, Paul prays in verse 16 for the Christians in Ephesus to have inner spiritual strength. It says in verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. It's very common for Christians to say, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, I want to know God better and, and I want to do greater things for God. But honestly, most of us are too spiritually puny to know God better. The truth is, we're too spiritually flabby for God to use us in greater ways. It's kind of like if, if uh, Braden, who works out a little bit, and Daniel and Ryan up here. Ryan, you want to stand up and show those guns, man? He's like, I'd rather not, Pastor Dane. <laughs> 
He's, he's got some upper bulk going on because the guy lifts, right? If you were to say, Dane, I'm going to take you to the gym today, and I'm going to put you on the bench, and you're going to bench press 200 pounds. Guess what's going to happen to Pastor Dane? You're going to have to find me another preacher for next week. <laughs> I don't like going to the gym. I like running through the desert. That's what I do to exercise. Man, I like running through the desert and looking for coyotes. You know, that's, that's fun for me. I don't like pumping iron, and so you take me to the gym, stick me on the bench, and give me 200 pounds of weight, I might get it off the bar, but when it comes down, it's not going back up. And so I can't get that 200 pounds back up, and I'm going to probably hurt myself in the process. Why? Because I'm physically flabby when it comes to lifting weights. The same holds true spiritually. Amen? What is true in the natural is so often true in the spiritual. You and I say we want God to bring revival to our church and to our families and to our nation, but honestly, most of us aren't preparing for it. If God were to show up right now in this room in extraordinary ways, many of us couldn't handle it. We haven't gotten down on our knees in years. We're not sure we could do it if we had to do it. We can't remember the last time we prayed for more than five minutes at a time. We're spiritually flabby. We have no spiritual strength. We have no spiritual stamina. Now, when revival comes, it's going to knock all our socks off, no matter how much preparation we've done. But many Christians won't be able to handle it because they haven't even tried to prepare for it. So Paul prays that we would bulk up spiritually. Those who experience revival on day one tend to be those Christians who have been prioritizing prayer and have been strengthened by the Holy Spirit, catch this, to receive a greater outpouring of God. Have you been preparing yourself to receive a greater outpouring of God? Have you been preparing yourself? Just like in Asbury last month, some of those Christian students probably had never prayed for a half hour straight, and all of a sudden they're praying for hours. But they had begun to prepare. They weren't complete rookies with prayer, were they? Remember, revival comes to Christians in the church. We find it coming to Christians in the church. Christians particularly who have prepared themselves in some way. We, we've got to build up that spiritual strength. And that's spiritual endurance. Second, Paul prays in verse 17 for the Christians in Ephesus to have inner spiritual, see it there? Depth. Inner spiritual depth. He says in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love. Now, notice in verse 17 a couple very important words. Number one is the word rooted. As you might guess, rooted is an agricultural term. And so Paul's using an agricultural term here. Just like an oak tree needs roots to go down deeply into the soil to tap into the water table to get the hydration that tree needs and to tap into the good soil to get the nutrients that tree needs. Uh, he is saying here in this prayer, I want you to send your roots deeply into the love of Christ. I want you to send your roots deeply into the word of God. I want you to be rooted. But then he uses the second word and established. Established isn't an agricultural term. Established in the original Greek is actually an architectural term. It's talking about the foundation of the building. We all know enough about architecture to know the higher you build a building, the stronger that foundation has to be. 
If you don't have a very strong foundation as you add story after story after story to a building, you're going to have the Leaning Tower of Pisa. That's what happened to that building. It was okay the first two floors, but they added that third floor and the fourth floor, and all of a sudden, whoop, starts tilting on them because the foundation was shot. We got to have a spiritual foundation, Paul says. He says, I want you to be rooted and established and grounded and founded in the love of Christ and in the word of God. I think one of the greatest prayers you could ever pray for me or for any other Christian in this church or any other Christian in your family is that we would be rooted and established in the word of God. Would you... Would you begin praying this for me? Oh, God, if you have in mind for our church to move to a new location and we have more people coming in than we had at George Boulevard and we have more opportunities to reach people and both in person and online, Pastor Dane is able to get his messages to more people that need to hear the truth from God's word. As that happens, oh, God, would you do me a favor? Would you make sure that Pastor Dane stays rooted and grounded in the word of God? Would you make sure that his head doesn't get too big for his britches? I don't know if that makes sense, but you know what I mean. I pray that he would be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ and in the word of God. What a glorious prayer for your kids. What a glorious prayer for your grandkids. What a glorious prayer for your parents or your siblings. What a glorious prayer for for your friends who are Christians. Oh God, help them to be rooted and grounded in the word of God. Third, Paul prays in verse 18 for Christians in Ephesus to have inner spiritual insight. Isn't that? I love that word insight. Notice what he says in verse 18 in this prayer. May they have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Wow. This is one of the best prayers you could pray for me. Just like that last part of the prayer, please pray this one for me as well. Oh, God, I I want Pastor Dane. Oh, God, I want my husband. I want my wife. I want my kids to be able to have spiritual insight to grasp how long and how wide and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. I want him to grasp that. We, We talk about the unconditional, never failing love of Christ. We preach sermons about the unconditional, never ending love of Christ. We sing songs about the unconditional, never-ending love of Christ. But Paul prays that we would grasp the unconditional, never-ending love of Christ that is immeasurably wide, unfathomably long, incomparably high, and unimaginably deep. I love how God's love is expressed in that old hymn simply titled, The Love of God. That final verse of that hymn dates back a thousand years, originally written in Arabic. It was eventually translated into English and put to music. That last verse says, Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. And then about a hundred years ago, a Nazarene minister and his daughter put this to music and added this beautiful chorus. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, 
How measureless and strong it shall for the saints and angels song. Can you imagine for all eternity the saints and the angels in unison singing about the unfathomably deep and wide and long and high love of Christ. Unimaginable. We have only begun to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So Paul prays that the Ephesian Christians would grasp his love. He prays for them and for us to have inner spiritual insight. And that leads us to the final part of Paul's prayer in verse 19. Now, why did Paul pray so fervently for the Ephesian Christians here in this chapter? It wasn't primarily a prayer for their inner spiritual strength. That wasn't his most important thing he wanted to pray, although he prayed it. The most important thing wasn't for them to have inner spiritual depth or even inner spiritual insight. The most important thing that Paul wanted to pray for those Ephesians Christians was number four here. Right there in verse 18, he prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge and the fullness of God. Verse 19, actually. He says in verse 19, And to to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Inner spiritual strength is great, but it is strength that leads to something. Inner spiritual depth is wonderful and necessary, but it leads to something. Inner spiritual insight is priceless. But it leads to something. His greatest desire for the Christians he cares about is that they would know intimately the love of Christ and be filled with as much of God as possible. And here, I think, is where the rubber hits the road when it comes to revival. Many Christians have spent time in God's Word and time in prayer and have gotten spiritually stronger. Amen? Many Christians have spent time in church and time in God's word and time in prayer and they've gotten spiritually deeper. This is a church where if you keep coming to, you will get deeper. As long as you don't have the headphones on or ignoring what's being taught, you will get deeper in your word here. And this is a church where as you continue to dive into God's word with us and pray with us and and, and continue to soak it in, you will get more spiritual insight. Amen. But the most glorious thing about revival is when God shows up, we get to know him better and better and better and better. That sounds like revival, doesn't it? The most important thing about revival is God. He shows up in extraordinary ways and we get to know him in ways we didn't think were even possible. During times of revival, our eyes are opened and we realize that up to that point, we've barely known God. We realize that we've only scratched the surface of what there is to learn of his grace and his mercy, his peace and his freedom, his justice and his joy. And any spiritual hunger we had for him before revival came is only intensified when revival actually comes. We were spiritually hungry, but during revival we get hungrier. We were spiritually thirsty, but during during revival we get spiritually thirstier. We wanted to know God and love God more, but during revival our desire to know and love God intensifies. I want to suggest to you that this type of prayer that Paul prays here in Ephesians 3 is sorely lacking in the church today. 
You take a careful look at this prayer, it's a lot different than the prayers we tend to pray as Christians today. Many books have been written on the subject of revival over the centuries, and one of the best of those books on revival was written by the 20th century, uh, he was actually a Welsh pastor, named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And back in 1959, which was the 100th anniversary of the great Welsh revival of 1859, back in 1959, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached a series of messages on revival that were eventually turned into a book. And here's an excerpt from that book by Lloyd-Jones that I thought was particularly powerful. It really got me thinking. He writes, It seems to me that there is no hope for revival until you and I and all of us have reached the stage in which we begin to forget ourselves a little and to be concerned for the church, for God's body, His people here on earth, So many of our prayers are subjective and self-centered. We'll stop there for a moment. I want you to think carefully about what Lloyd-Jones is saying here. See if you agree with him, because I agree with him. I think he's right. There's a reason why God tells us in 2 Chronicles 7.14, number one, humble yourselves and then pray. Notice in 2 Chronicles 7.14, he doesn't just come out and say, pray. He says, humble yourselves and pray. Why is that? Because a lot of our prayers can be rather shallow, right? He says, humble yourselves and pray. A lot of our prayers can be self-centered. So he says, humble yourselves and pray. A lot of our prayers can be about me, myself, and I. And so he says, humble yourselves and pray. Humble yourselves. God hates self-centeredness, especially in our prayers. So you and I have to be careful not to get into the habit of praying prayers that are 90% about me, myself, and I. We have to be careful that we're not praying day after day and week after week prayers that are 90% about my problems and rarely about the bride of Christ, the church. We're inspired when we read Paul's prayer for the Ephesian Christians here in Ephesians 3, but we don't stop to think about how drastically different this prayer is than our prayers. We don't stop to think about that. And we don't stop to think about how we can adjust our prayers to become more like Paul's prayers. Tell me, where was Paul when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians? You remember? He was under house arrest in Rome. So think about that. He's under house arrest in Rome. He's confined to a house. In all likelihood, he is chained to a Roman soldier night and day. He's not allowed to leave that house. He can't go out for a breath of fresh air. He's stuck in that house for at least two years, chained to a Roman soldier who's with him when he gets dressed in the morning, when he goes to bed at night, and when he goes to the bathroom. That Roman soldier's right there hovering over him. Do you think Paul, there in that Roman house arrest, had some problems that are worse than the problems you and I have today? Yet you look at this prayer in Ephesians 3, you don't find a single time that Paul is praying that this food would get better because this prison food is for the birds. It's horrible. He doesn't pray for better food, does he? He doesn't pray, God, these chains, man, they're a little tight on my wrists and my ankles. Could you do something to get rid of these chains, at least loosen them a bit? He doesn't pray for that. God, could you have this uh, Roman soldier just, you know, take my chains and shackles off and fall asleep for, I don't know, three weeks? <laughs> Give me a little bit of R&R from this house. Man, this is stuffy in here. I'm getting stir-crazy in here. None of that. 
He's under house arrest in a situation that in many ways is much worse than our situation. And he takes the time to pray for the church and for the Christians there in Ephesus. He doesn't pray at all for himself here. Now, he did at other times pray for himself. I'm not saying he never did. But he doesn't pray that God would do all those things for him here when he is on his knees crying out to God. Instead, he forgets about himself a little and prays for the church. He pleads for the church. Lloyd-Jones goes on to write this. You can put up that next slide. We have our problems and difficulties, and by the time that we have finished with them, we're tired and exhausted, and we do not pray for the church. We must get back this notion that we are the people of God. And that it is for his name's sake and because his name is upon us, we must plead for the church, yes, and for her glory and her honor because she is his. Isn't that good? She is his. Friends, Christ loves the church. Christ died for the church. The church is his bride, his pride and joy, and he is building his church. Do you know why Christ is building his church? There's several reasons, but... One of the reasons he's building his church is because, wait for it, the church is the hope of the world. The church is the hope of the world. Say that with me. The church is the hope of the world. Say it like you mean it. The church is the hope of the world. If our culture is transformed, it will be on the heels of Christ's church being transformed. If millions of Americans get saved, it will be because Christ's church gets saved. If Christ's marching orders get followed, it will be because the church is following his marching orders. If our Father in heaven is glorified, it will be largely because Jesus Christ is glorifying Christ through his church. Christ's church is the hope of the world. The church is Jesus' chosen vessel for expanding his kingdom of heaven here on earth and bringing glory to God. It's as simple as that. The church is his chosen vessel. So that being the case, why aren't we praying for the church every single day? Why aren't we praying for the church? If Christ's church is the hope of the world, why aren't we praying for the church every day? We must not care as much for the world as we claimed because if we cared as much for the world as we claimed, then we, want, we would want to pray for the church that is the hope of the world. It's great to pray for your food. It's great to pray for your finances. It's great to pray for a roof over your head and for your car to actually run the next day when it's been acting up. Those are all wonderful prayers. It's important to pray those things and take those things to God. But please start carving out time to pray for the bride of Christ every day. Pray for impact. Pray for other churches across the Victor Valley. Some of you used to go to High Desert Church. Are you still praying for High Desert Church? Some of you used to go to Calvary Chapel. Are you still praying for Calvary Chapel? Some of you go to other churches in the community and God has led you to come over here. And you know what? Are you praying for those churches? We sometimes complain about our prior church more than we pray for it. Be praying because we need every church filled that bears the name of Christ. Except for the Mormon church, it bears the name of Christ, but only on the front of the building. Pray for impact. Pray for other churches. Pray for pastors. Pray for elders. Pray for missionaries. Pray for the entire body of Christ. And please join me. 
And hundreds of Christians, uh, hundreds of thousands of Christians across this nation who are praying for revival. And maybe a prayer like this, keeping in mind what Paul has prayed here in Ephesians 3. A prayer like this, we could say, oh, Father in heaven, come. Lord Jesus, come. Holy Spirit, come. Revive us again. Make us spiritually stronger. Help us to stop filling our churches with watered-down, sugar-coated sermons and help us to dig deeper in your loving word. Take the veils off our hearts and minds so that we can grasp clearer how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And Lord Jesus, please fill your church up fuller with the fullness of knowing and loving you. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you sense the power in that biblical prayer? You keep taking your needs to Jesus, but make sure you carve out time to go deeper in your prayer time. You keep lifting up your needs and your family's needs to the Lord. He wants to hear those needs and know that you're trusting in him to meet those needs. But you take those prayers a little wider. You take those prayers a little further. You take those, uh, those prayers a little uh, with greater breadth than you do right now. God wants you to go deeper, to go further, to go wider than you've ever prayed before. During this pivotal time in the life of Christ Church here in America, please pray for the church. Pray these kinds of prayers. After studying about prayer and revival for 60 years, J. Edwin Orr summarized what he had learned about prayer and revival this way. He said this, Whenever God is ready to do something new with his people, he always sets them to praying. Amen? He always sets them to praying. In Ephesians 3, Paul brings to a close his prayer for the Ephesian Christians with this beautiful benediction. You can see it for yourself there in verses 20 and 21. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask. Or, oh, this is too good for me to read by myself. Join me, would you? Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. And we pray for the church of Jesus Christ on earth. We pray for the church of Jesus Christ here in the city of Victorville. We pray for the church of Jesus Christ in the Victor Valley and in the high desert and in California and in the United States of America. Oh God, I pray. I pray, oh God, that you would help us to be stronger, that we would equip ourselves by spending more time in prayer, more time in worship, more time in your word. Lord, I pray that you would make us stronger so we are more ready when you come rushing in and bring revival. Lord Jesus, help us to go deeper into the love of Christ and into the word of God. Forgive us, Lord, for being content with shallow Bible studies when we open your word during the week. Forgive us, O oh God, for thirsting for church services and sermons that just scratch the surface of the depth of your wisdom and love. Help us, O oh God, to go deeper. Help us, O oh God, to lay down deep roots and to have a stronger foundation in your love and in the word of God. O oh Lord, give us insight. 
to understand better than ever before how long and how wide and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. Oh, God, give us insight. And I pray, oh, God, that we would get to know you and our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, better than ever before. You say in John 17, 3, Lord Jesus, this is eternal life, to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Lord, we want to have a piece of heaven here on earth by getting to know Jesus Christ better and better and better. We want to draw closer to you, Jesus. We want to know you more. We want to experience your grace and your mercy and your love and your compassion and your justice and your joy more than ever before. Forgive us for being satisfied with knowing you just a little bit. We want to know you a lot. Fill us with the fullness of the knowledge of God. Lord Jesus, move in your church. Lord Jesus, move here. And you know my prayer, O God. When we get in that new location and we have more people coming in, I don't want them walking away saying, Oh, wow, those are some great greeters. Oh, my goodness, those are some wonderful singers. What a great band. Oh, man, that preacher, man, he can wax eloquently up there. What, what a great preacher they have. Lord, we want them to walk away saying, I, I, I had an experience with Jesus Christ today. What a great Savior. Lord Jesus, we want it to be about you. And so, Lord, we're going to work hard and we're going to prepare and we're going to pray. But if you don't show up, we need to pack up and go back home. Lord Jesus, would you move? We want it to be about you. It's always been about you. It's always going to be about you. Lord Jesus, would you be glorified in our church and in our faith and in the way that we follow you and serve you. May you be glorified and spotlighted in all of it. As as Adam just pointed out yesterday at our men's breakfast, John the Baptist said he must become greater. I must become less. He must increase. I must decrease. Lord Jesus, we want to pray the same thing. Would you increase? Would you become greater in our lives and in our church? And we want to decrease and become less. Lord Jesus, be glorified. And draw everyone unto yourself. For the glory of God. And the advancement of your kingdom here on earth. We love you, Jesus. And we know in the days to come, we'll have the opportunity to know you and love you even better. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give him some praise and glory today. If, uh, if you have never made a decision to accept Christ as Savior, what are you waiting for? You can chase after money. You can chase after job promotions. You can chase after a newer and faster car. You can get a bigger house. You can have fame and fortune and have 500 followers on social media and multiply that times a thousand. Well, I've got 500,000, half a million followers on social media, and you will get to the end of your life and it'll all be meaningless. You can't take any of it with you. And you're going to spend eternity separated from God. Don't be a fool. Accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. He created you. He knit you together in your mother's womb, and he put you here for a reason much bigger than yourself. He puts you here to bring glory to God. And he puts you here to lock arms with other followers of Jesus Christ. To do something pretty amazing that will blow your mind. Accept Jesus Christ. Admit that you are a sinner. Believe that he died on the cross for your sins and choose to follow him beginning today. Adam's in back. 
He's going to be there as long as you need him to be there to pray with you and to talk to you about accepting Christ if you need to make that decision. I'll be up here for a little while. We've got others that will be here as well. If you need prayer, if you need to make a decision, please let us know. Don't get into that parking lot and get into your car and leave without getting right with God today. He did not promise you tomorrow. Today is the day to make a decision for him. Maybe you're here and you've made a decision for Christ, but you've been backsliding. You know you need to rededicate your life. If you have that decision to make, you come see us, and we'd love to talk with you and pray with you about that. And if you are making that decision for Christ and you realize you need to be baptized, that's what you do. Step one, you make that decision to accept Christ, you get baptized. You make it clear to God, the angels, whoever's watching, I am having my old life buried And as I come up out of that water, I'm saying to everybody, Jesus Christ has washed me clean. I am starting a brand new life following him. We're ready for you. If you have that decision to make, you come see us. It's an exciting time in the life of our church. We've got a couple sign-ups in the lobby. Uh, Make sure you see Renee. Uh, Renee's going to go ahead. I think she already did slip out there and be ready for you, parents, grandparents, if you want to get those uh, tickets for the skate day for your kiddos. And then also out there, we've got to sign up for our men's camp coming up at the end of April. I'm going to make the decision probably by the end of today whether or not we're going to keep our spots for man camp. It's going to be a busy time having just launched our new campus a few weeks before that man camp. So I really need to know who here, uh, guys, is planning on going. So if you plan on going to man camp, uh, do put your name down on that sign up on the lobby. We also, in the back of the room, have those little yellow slips. If you weren't here last week and you'd like uh, to fill out that little survey of what you think and what you've Uh, what your thoughts are about moving to Apple Valley, uh, whether or not you'd like to uh, volunteer in a certain area, 